Well, good evening. It's, uh, it's good to be with you this evening as we begin our fall series in the Sunday night service called Legacy. Now, I recognize many of familiar faces. Some of you, um, this is one of your first times here, and you're welcome. We're, we're glad you're here. But many of you were here for lots of our Sunday night services last fall as we studied the life of Abraham together. We started off in Genesis chapter 12, and we, we journeyed together through the fall and the life of Abraham and this call that God had placed upon him. Well, this fall, we're picking up right where we left off last December in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to spend the fall looking at the lives of Isaac and Jacob, the legacy of faith that Abraham received from God that he then was was tasked to pass down generation to generation to each other. And when you think about it, Isaac and Jacob had some pretty big shoes to fill. Right? No matter where you come from, Abraham is regarded as one of the most influential people in the history of the entire world. There's not a lot of debate about that. If you have a top five list, he's got to be on there. And they follow in the legacy that he has. You know, this last week I've been thinking about how, how each and every one of us flow from some sort of legacy in our past, and we're leaving some sort of legacy that people and our family and those close to us will remember for us beyond that. You know, it was, uh, it was providential um, that God really brought this to heart for me uh, this past week, this idea of thinking about legacy and the faith that, that we see modeled before us that we're tasked to, to grow into and pass down to the generations and those who will come after us. Um, I, uh, along with our Sunday night service team, we kind of picked this theme and this topic many months ago. And it was on uh, this past week, on Tuesday night, my grandfather uh, who uh, watched the Cubs-Brewers game. He's from the Wisconsin. His, uh, his, was born, he was born and raised. He's been a Milwaukee fan his whole life. He, he, Tuesday night watched the Cubs-Brewers game. He went to bed and he woke up in heaven meeting Jesus. And we praise God for that. He was 84 and we're, we praise God that, that he's no longer in any pain and suffering. But I was thinking this past week of the legacy that I don't even often think of that, that I flow into that's based off of a lot of where he set my family's trajectory that, of course, he lived into as well. It's interesting. I went to the same college as my grandpa about 50 years apart. He went to Moody Bible Institute in the 1950s. And that's where God called me to go to college and to study. He attended a church right here, often when he was in college. And this is the church that I began to attend in college. He was a pastor for over 40 years. Well, I've only got 10, so I've got at least another 30 to go to live into that legacy. And by God's grace, I hope that I can. And the legacy of faith that he passed down to, to my dad and to my parents, that, that I was so blessed to have that I've inherited and that I hope to be able to pass down one day as well to the generations and to the people who follow along after us. And we're going to look at this idea as we study through of, of faith, not just being a one generation thing, but being passed down and seeing God's handiwork throughout the whole thread of scripture and how God is faithful, not just to one generation. God wasn't just faithful to Abraham. 
but he was faithful to his son Isaac, and he was faithful to Isaac's son Jacob. And we'll see as we go throughout this fall that we can trust in the faithfulness of God as we see his faithfulness throughout all of Scripture. If you have your Bibles tonight, I would encourage you to open them um, to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in your Bible, Genesis chapter 25. Um, You also hopefully received one of the handouts tonight as you came in, our entire text for tonight in Genesis 25, starting in verse 19, is, uh, is in the handout for tonight. And as we begin tonight, I want to reaffirm and remind us again that as we study through God's word, especially as we study through so much of the Old Testament, and we read about the characters and the people on these forefathers of our faith, the point of the Old Testament isn't to show us people's lives and to say, be like that. To be like that. Now, are there things about people's faith that we can look at in Scripture and model and model after and want our lives to be like? Yes. But the point of the stories of the Old Testament, these true things that happen that are passed on or recorded to us, isn't so we simply have people to be like, but it teaches us greater lessons about the God that we still serve now. Because as we sung tonight, as we open, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that we worship today. He has not changed. We worship the same God. And as we look tonight at Genesis 25, we're going to see three marvels of God's working in this passage tonight. Three marvels of God's working. In verse 25, verse 19, it says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. All right. Verse 19 is like the understatement of the year. All right. And it's only understood if you understand what has happened before. And he introduces this new section with saying, these are the generations. That's the formula in Genesis for going on to kind of telling another story, the continuance on of the next generation. And he says that the Abraham fathered Isaac. Those three words encapsulate in such a simple form the dramatic story of nearly 13 chapters of the Bible. God called Abraham. Abraham was a pagan man living in a foreign country far from God. And God reached down in Genesis chapter 12 and said, Abraham, I'm calling you to go to a place you don't know. And Abraham followed. And God made promises to Abraham that were unconditional. God said, Abraham, I am going to bless you with blessing. I'm going to give you offspring more numerous than you could ever count. And I'm going to give you a land in which to dwell. And we see throughout Abraham's life, the blessing that that he receives from God, the blessing that ultimately will point to the fulfillment, not in some physical or material thing, but the ultimate blessing we receive through Abraham is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The ultimate blessing of the world come through Abraham's family line. And then he's supposed to have offspring, but here's the deal. When Abraham's called, he's not a young man. He's 90, and his wife is 80. And so they pray to God, okay, God, if you're going to provide for us offspring, you've got to do something. And so they pray, and nothing seems to happen. And they keep following God, and Abraham keeps trying to take matters into his own hand, keeps trying to solve God's problems forehand. And God's like, thanks for the try, but that's not what I was asking. I was asking you to have faith in what I'm doing. And eventually, at 100 years old, 
God shows up and promises Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. And by the, next, by the time they visit next year, that they would have indeed their very own son. Abraham laughs at this. Sarah laughs at this. And a year later, a baby boy is born named Isaac, whose name means laughter. Whose name means laughter. That God provided the son finally. He gave them a land in the land of Israel. And we see as as Abraham travels about, he finally ends up in that land. So this is the Abraham who fathered Isaac, trusting God for so many years, waiting for God until God finally provided for him. It says this, and Isaac, verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's amazing, isn't it, that Isaac and Rebekah find themselves, while they're of normal childbearing age, they find themselves in the same circumstance that Abraham and Sarah found themselves, and that suddenly they're promised the offspring. But they're promised the line of God will go through them. The Messiah will come from you ultimately, and they can't have kids. And we see here um, so many things that work. First, in their culture, being barren was a, a shame upon people. It was looked down upon. It was seen as if, why has God put his face against you? It was seen as something that was looked down upon culturally. But for each of them, they had these promises that they were trying to live into that didn't seem like they were coming true. Back in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, back in 21, verse 12, Abraham is promised this, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall this nation come, they'll be more numerous than sand on the seashore. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac gets married and he doesn't have any children. As Rebecca, in chapter 24, the chapter before, leaves her family home and moves back with Isaac, the blessing that is called out to her, that her blessing placed upon her, is this in chapter 24, verse 60. To Rebecca, it says, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. And she has no offspring. And they have to wait upon God. They wait upon God. And it says here that Isaac prayed and God granted the request. Now, sometimes there's like oversimplifications that we may be like, oh, so he just waited. He finally prayed. He like prayed one time and then God answered and they became pregnant. Well, if you look down in verse 26, and when they had this child, the last line of verse 26, it says this, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore them. Let me get this straight. My math is not always strong. If you're 40 when you get married and 60 years when you have kids, I think that's 20 years of waiting. Am I right? Someone said I'm right. All right, thank you. Thank you for double checking. They have a calculator, I think. They double checked for me. They're right. right. 20 years of waiting for God. The first marvel of God's working that we see in this passage is this marvelous plan of God. The plan of God. It's just this marvel that we look at and we stand in awe and amazement at. Because God knew exactly what he was doing. 
God knew the whole time. He had made promises and he would fulfill his promises. But he still had a better plan for Isaac and Rebekah in that he asked them and called them. In his plan was the plan for them to wait. And not just for a couple days, not just for a couple years, but for two decades to wait on God. See, I don't know about you. I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait for much of anything in life. I don't like to wait for traffic. I don't like to wait in line at the grocery store. I don't just don't like to wait. And that's, I think, a fairly normal thing in our world. And oftentimes when it comes to our relationship with God, one of the worst things in our culture today that we could sense God saying to us is, yeah, okay, but just wait on it. And we're like, oh, no. Oh, no. See, we want spiritual growth. We want the blessings of God. We want things in life to come quickly on our timetable. And God's up there with a whole different plan. And he's like, oh, okay, you think this is going to happen tomorrow? All right, keep thinking. Keep thinking. But I've got a better plan. And oftentimes, God's best plan for our lives is accomplished through making us wait. God's best plan for our lives is often accomplished by making us wait. Waiting almost always leads to something better. And when it's waiting for God, it always leads to something better. See, if you think about when you wait for something, just in our world, it almost always turns out better. Think of food, for example. If you can go to a restaurant and you can get food in 60 seconds versus if it takes 45 minutes to cook your food, which food is going to taste better? The food you had to wait for. Right? There's just a reality is if you can get the food that quick, there's going to be something that's not just quite as flavorful as if it took a long time to make. But the wait is worth it because you know what's coming in the end. I was thinking back this last week to one of the first times my wife and I hosted our family for Christmas. And we kind of had all the things assembled and get together. And someone brought the meat and they dropped it off the day before, a couple days before, and it was prime rib. And it was going to be amazing. And it was from Costco. So this isn't a small primary, but if it's from Costco, you know it's like almost hard to fit in your oven. It's so big, right? And suddenly, after it was already too late in the day, I started to look at how you cook prime rib. You don't cook prime rib in an hour if you ever cooked prime rib. It takes a long, long time to cook. We moved our, uh, our dinner time back about five, six hours after we realized, oh, this isn't like a ham where you just heat it up real quick. You have to actually let this thing sit in there for a long, long time. But we knew what was coming, so it was worth the wait. The plan of God, when he asks us to wait, it's always worth waiting for. When God asks his people to wait on him, it's always worth waiting for. See, the reality is, God is not too slow in fulfilling his plan in our lives. We're too impatient. God's not too slow. We are just too impatient. And as we wait on God, because if you find yourself in a season of waiting, you find yourself in the best company of some of the best heroes of our faith. When we find ourselves waiting on God, we should never stop worshiping. When we wait on God, we should never stop worshiping. It's in the waiting 
that God often does his greatest work in our lives. So if you find yourself waiting for something from God, be encouraged tonight. It's worth waiting for. God's plan is good for his people, and he will accomplish his plan. And it is always good for us to wait upon the Lord. Verse 22, Rebecca is pregnant. It says this, The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 22 says that, that the children, so we already are, are getting a glimpse here that she's pregnant with more than one child. She has twins. And it says that they struggled together in her. This is, um, this is an understatement for what was happening to her. It was, uh, the, the, they try and get the right word, the right translation. It's hard for us to grasp what the right translation of this word struggle. Lots of commentators use the word they jostled. It was a violent movement within her. It was more than just the regular pains of pregnancy. It was more than that. In fact, this same word jostled or struggled is also in places pronounced crushed in the Bible. There's a story in, in Judges chapter 9 of a man walking underneath a wall, a woman throwing down a stone and crushing his skull. That word crush is the same word for the twins struggling inside of her. This is a violent struggle going on inside of her. And she senses this is more than something physical. There's a greater thing going on. And she cries out in pain, why me? Basically, God, why me? What is happening to me? What is going on? And so she cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers in verse 23. It says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God speaks, and he makes this provocative statement that the older boy will serve the younger, which is a shocking statement in their culture that valued age over everything else. If you're the youngest child like me, you're like, yeah, that's how it should be. The older should serve the younger. I'm glad God straightened him out so far. I wish you would still apply that today like this. But this is a shocking statement that they would assume that it's the oldest that would have the blessing. It's the oldest who will rule. The blessing goes down to the oldest. So God, before these boys are born, says that the older will actually serve the younger. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. Names play a significant role in the Bible. Isaac is named Isaac because of his parents' laughter. And so his name means he laughs. Esau is, uh, is coming from one who it's a play on words to the word red or, and also hairy. So we see he comes out, he's hairy and he's red. And we're going to see how this idea of red plays in down the road to, to Esau's future. But after Esau, it says this in verse 26, afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The second boy's name is Jacob, and he comes out holding the heel. And his name, Jacob, literally means 
holding on to the heel or grasping the heel, but it's also a derivative word. It's a way to describe someone who is a deceiver, a trickster, you could say. We're going to see how that name plays into Jacob's life and into Jacob's role. The second marvel that we see in this passage is we see this marvel thing, this marvelous thing of the purposes of God. We see this amazing thing in the plan of God that he puts um, Isaac and Rebekah through, but then the purposes of God that God has for Jacob and for Esau's life. Notice when this proclamation by God was made. It was made while they were in the womb before they were even born. God had an eternal purpose in mind that he had already planned out for these two boys. The question that we want to ask ourselves today is, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And the Bible is clear why God did it. Because he wanted to. Because God is sovereign. God is a sovereign God. That's a word we use a lot in church. Sovereign meaning like a sovereign king is ruler over his nation and does as he pleases. So is God over the world and God does as he pleases. Our country may be a democracy, but our world is not a democracy. We don't get to vote and tell God what he gets to do. He's in charge. He's God. We are not. We see throughout scripture this idea of the sovereignty of God over all different aspects of life. We see that the God is sovereign over our lives and our plans. Proverbs says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God himself is sovereign over when we are born and when we die. It says this in scripture in 1 Samuel 12, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. God is sovereign even over random things that seem to happen in life. Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And finally, we see that God is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 115 says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is the sovereign God. And this passage about God choosing Jacob over Esau before they were born is applied to us in the New Testament to show God's sovereignty over something else. It shows us God's sovereignty over salvation. God's sovereignty over salvation. This story that we just read is referenced for us in Scripture in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, which we have on the screen, starting in verse 10. It says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans chapter 9 is one of the, the uh, main places in the Bible we see clearly laid out for us what we know as the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, which means this, that God calls forth people. 
He is sovereign over salvation, and nothing that anyone has done or could do affects God's call towards his people. And he uses the example, Paul looks back at Scripture and says, what could be an example from Scripture of God's sovereignty over things? And he looks at this story and says, this is how God is sovereign over salvation. And so let's look back at verse 10. It says this, that God shows Jacob. If you can go to the next verse, the first verse. God shows Jacob, look at the first line. He says, though they were not yet born. God's choice of Jacob and Esau wasn't once they were born, once he got a little scouting look at him, figure, oh, I like this one better. No, it was before they were born. It was before it said they had done nothing good or bad. Before they had done anything good or bad. They had not done one action, they were still in the womb, and that's when God chose them. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. God did it because of his greater purpose. And in case we haven't gotten it yet, he says, not because of works, not because of anything that they had done, and not because of anything that they would do. God didn't look forward to the future and be like, oh, you know, I think Jacob's going to be a little better guy than Esau, so I'm going to go with Jacob on this one. No, it wasn't because of their works that God chose them. But why? But because of him who calls. Because God is sovereign over all things. He called him, and it says the older will serve the younger. And, and Paul ends in Romans 9, his, his description of verse 13 with a quote, not from our passage in Genesis, but actually this is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those are confusing terms in our English language, but, but in the original context in Malachi, he's talking about covenantal language of choosing or not chosen. And it's another expression that they would have in their original languages of saying, Jacob, I chose, Esau, I rejected. He's not saying that he had a hatred towards someone, but he had chosen Jacob and Esau, he had not chosen. Now, it's an amazing mystery, isn't it? That God is sovereign over salvation, yet he still calls us to respond to that salvation. Right? The Bible is clear that no one, the only way for salvation is those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet we answer the call in response to the call that God first placed towards us. It's when we really start to grasp the purposes of God in our world, that he had a plan for our salvation, not because of what we had done, before we were ever born, if you're a believer, God called you. God called you before you were born, before you had ever done anything good or bad. He knew you because of his sovereignty over all things. But how can we not just respond in worship and thankfulness to a God like that? Often when we resist this doctrine, because it kind of goes against a lot of our human nature and our independent thinking, we, we often push against it. But this doctrine of election, of God's purposes and salvation, I think is so great and so comforting for us. Because the reality is this, if we didn't choose, if God, excuse me, if God didn't choose us, we would have never chosen him. If God didn't choose us and transform us, we in our sin, dead in our sin, would have never said, hey, you know what I need? I need to submit my life to God. 
we would have never done that. The only way that any of us have salvation is when God calls us to salvation and we respond to the message. God's purposes are a marvel of his working. The story continues. We fast forward in the scene in verse 27. When the boys grew up, we get a little profile of them. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He's the outdoorsman. He's the, the wild. He's, he's the hunter. He goes out and he has adventures and kills the, the animals. It says, well, Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. This doesn't look down on Jacob, but this would be the more normal description of a man of that time. You could say Jacob was a businessman. A man of the tents didn't mean he like, didn't like to go outside, but it meant he went to the marketplaces and worked transaction deals. He was just a normal business man. And then we have this statement in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Anytime you see in the Bible that parents are split on their adorations, you're like, okay, something's coming, right? Something is coming. This does not work out well. This doesn't mean that Isaac hated Jacob or Rebekah absolutely hated Esau, but their affections were especially stirred towards one of their children. And so this story takes place at the end of chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. He was exhausted. And, ja and Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Now there's an irony here, because Esau comes back from the field, and we find out that Esau, who's the skillful hunter, comes back empty-handed. He has no food with him to cook. And he comes back and he says he's famished. And Jacob's there cooking something. And so he says, give me some of that red stew. The literal translation scholars say is, give me that red stuff. That red stuff that you have over there. Just give it to me. Esau's name is a play on word with red. And Esau's descendants will become known the people of Edom, which also means red. But Jacob... We found out his name means a heel grabber or a trickster. So Jacob's not just up for giving away his special red stew. You don't get the family recipe for nothing. It's a secret with Jacob. 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Now, is Esau actually on the verge of death? Probably not. All right, we don't know for sure, but scholars are pretty much, Esau's probably not about to die. He's just like, have you ever been hangry before? All right, like that means you're so hungry, you get angry, right? Esau's like out of his mind. He's been out, he's hunting, and he's failed, right? He's failed. He should have provided the meal, but he's failed, and he's angry and upset, and he comes back, and all he starts smelling is, is this. And Jacob says, give me your birthright, and when does he want it? Give me your birthright. When? Give it to me now. Give it to me now. 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. Again, do it now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now we don't know 
exactly what the birthright meant. It's not played out for us in scripture on exactly what all this entailed that Esau forfeited his birthright to Jacob. We do know that in the Mosaic law, which comes later in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that the older son typically got a double portion of the inheritance over the younger children. It could have been that Jacob was simply going and upping and doubling kind of what he was getting. But either way, we see here that Esau sacrificed something important just to fulfill his own human and fleshly desires. Verse 34 says this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Those verbs come so quick. It's to show this is just another whimsical thing of Esau. It's just another quick-flowing thing. Notice how quick they come. He ate, drank, rose, and left. Right? Esau doesn't mess around. Right? You're like, wow, where'd that food go? It's gone, and Esau's out with it. Right? He just shovels it in, and he's done and leaves. And we're told that he despised his birthright. The third marvel of God's working that we see in the story is the patience of God. The patience of God. Because the reality is both Esau and Jacob look pretty bad here. There is no be like this person in this passage. Esau is ruled by his desires, by his hunger, by his flesh. He makes quick, irrational decisions just to fulfill what he wants right now. That's not something for us to model. That's not a good character trait that we see in Esau. But we don't see much better in Jacob. Jacob sees the weakness of someone else and rather thinking, how can I serve them, thinks, how can I exploit them? How can I trick and deceive in this situation to get what's better for me? And they live up to the names that they have. But we see this amazing thing in this story and throughout the stories of the Old Testament. God is a patient God. God is a patient God. God doesn't look down at these two boys and be like, mm, my bad, zap them. Isaac and Rebecca, start over, please. Right? I can't have these two. These two? Really? Are you kidding me? God is so extraordinarily patient with those who are his people. He is so impatient with us. We talked to start about waiting on God. And I love this quote that Charles Spurgeon has about waiting on God, and we need to learn to wait on God when we are reminded of his patience towards us. Spurgeon once said this. He said, We will not grow weary of waiting upon God if we remember how long and how graciously he once waited on us. We won't grow weary of waiting on God's perfect plan in our lives when we start to realize, and I would add to it, not just that God once waited on us, but that God's patience towards us each and every single day. God is so patient towards us. A phrase that is repeated regularly throughout the Old Testament is that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Our God is a gracious, compassionate, and patient God. The patience of God should always drive us and motivate us to repent to him. So often with sin in our lives, we try and hide it. 
We think if God saw this, if I brought this before God, he would not forgive me. He would be upset. He would, he would throw me out. He might disown me as a Christian. He would never want anything to do with me. Friends, that's never the proper response towards sin. God is a patient God towards us. And may God's patience and his abounding love for us drive us to bring everything that we have to him, including our faults and our failures and our brokenness. We can come to him knowing he's a patient God. His love for us will never fail. This is the God we serve. The God who has a plan far greater than anything we could ever imagine, but he calls us often to wait, to wait for him. The purposes that he has sovereign over all things, including the salvation that he offers to his children and the patience that he has, which should motivate us to come before and bring everything we have to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for how you reveal yourself in your word. God, we thank you for your gracious mercy. God, your abounding love, your patience towards us. God, may your character, may your nature, as we learn more about you, may it drive us closer to you. May it move our hearts to repent of those things that we are trying to hide from you. God, for many of us tonight who are pushing against the plan of God, would you give us the ability to wait on you, to worship you while we wait to see your plan being fulfilled in our lives? God, we worship you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.